Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content marketing in the public sector. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name's David Pembroke, and welcome to this week's edition of In Transition, the podcast dedicated to the practice of content marketing in the public sector. Today, we speak to someone with years of experience as a publisher for private and public sector clients. But before we speak to our guest, as we do each week, it's time for our definition of content marketing. Content marketing is a strategic, measurable, and repeatable business process that relies on the creation, curation, and distribution of useful, relevant, and consistent content. The purpose is to engage and inform a specific audience in order to achieve a desired citizen or stakeholder action. Our guest today is Bobby Graham, Director of Bobby Graham Publishers and Business Development Manager of Masterdocs. Bobby is the principal of the Canberra-based digital publishing consultancy, BG Publishers, that specialises in alternative digital document conversion and production. She was one of the founding members of ANU ePress, which is now known as ANU Press, which delivered academic works online and has also worked as Director of Web Publishing at the National Library of Australia and Director of Publishing at Parliament House. During her time in government, she pioneered e-books for iPad and iPhone for the Parliamentary Library Publications. She has also been the recipient of the New South Wales Premier's History Award for her work, Wagga Wagga, A History, which highlights the achievement in the interpretation of history through both the written word and non-print media. Bobby joins me in the studio. Bobby, thanks for being in transition. David, thanks very much for welcoming me and what a lovely introduction. I learned something about myself. (laughs) What a great career. Yes, it has been. It's certainly been interesting. When did it start? When did this publishing thing start with you? Was it as a child that you you learned to love story? Uh, well, I certainly read a lot as a child, uh, but the publishing came about by chance. So I have to take you back into the mid seventies to away tell you that we story. go. Let's go back. Away we go. And I just <laughs> finished high school, and I went to university, uh-huh. and I didn't have a clue as to what I should study. And I met a very nice architectural student and I sat in the archie union and I smoked Gulwa's cigarettes and drank strong oh. coffee, as one does, <laughs> and completely neglected my studies, so much so that I failed at the end of my first year and the university kicked me out of the faculty. Oh. I was mortified. What was I going to do? There I was with schooling in Latin, <laughs> history, English literature, and I couldn't berets. do anything. That's right. <laughs> exactly. We did wear uniforms. And um, I thought the only pathway to me was perhaps to be become a secretary or a receptionist. Mm -hmm. So I thought, I'll learn how to type. And when I learned how to type, I went to uh, the equivalent of a tech to learn how to type. I got the opportunity to go for an interview with a gentleman by the name of Cyril Kemp, who ran a very nice small publishing company called College of Careers. And I was employed by them for three years as a typesetter. So that was an amazing learning experience because I learned all about the elements of type as a typesetter. Yes. And um, after about three years, I started thinking I'd like to do something else, get out of that kind of factory environment. And we'd been doing a bit of work for an Afrikaans publishing house called Tafelberg Publishers, and they had a job going. I applied for the job, and I got it, and I spent the next 16 years working there. 
So that was really my enormous learning experience about all things publishing. And I had the good fortune to work with a German gentleman by the name of Jürgen Fomm, who almost apprenticed me to him. He was very eccentric, very German, very correct, very punctilious, and he'd been brought out by the organization to improve the quality of publishing in the larger publishing group. So I sat next to him. I literally sat next to him and I learned about type. What are the qualities and properties of type? What's the difference between this A and that A? And I had to draw them. I had to sketch them. I learned all about bookmaking, paper, binding, printing, repro, setting, launching, co-productions, launches, Frankfurt Book Fair, Bologna Book Fair, American Booksellers Association. It was an incredible learning experience. So 15 years later, he retired and I was offered the position of production manager, which I accepted. And a year after that, I was perched by another company and I moved on to Strake Publishers, whom you might know here as New Holland Press. Right. So I yep. spent six months there, didn't really like it, left and then finished my career in South Africa as a publisher working for Maskey Miller Longman, part of the Pearson Group, and that was in yep. educational publishing. Okay. So that was a different learning experience. So Tafelberg was all about mainstream trade, fiction, nonfiction, children's, um, that kind of publishing. Maskey Miller Longman was about educational publishing, specifically for primary schools. And then we migrated and we moved to Australia and settled in Wagga Wagga, 250 kilometers east of Canberra, small country town, and I thought it was fantastic. But I couldn't get a job, couldn't find employment. So I thought, oh, well, that's okay. I'm going to set up shop as a publisher myself. And prior to that, a uh, long time prior to that, when I was at Frankfurt, I attended the first ever electronic media conference that they'd given. And I was filled with excitement at this thought of digital mm. publishing. This was yeah. 1993, a long time ago. Yeah. And I thought, I have to enact this. I have to fulfill this in some sort of a way. So when I got to Wagga, that's what I did. I set up a small publishing business called Bobby Graham Publishers at the time as well. Uh -huh. And I persuaded five people to publish digitally with me. And I produced my first ever e-books in, in 2000. And I sat back and I waited for the sales. And, of course, they didn't come. <laughs> it's like going to Woolworths and having five things on many, many shelves. So I thought, well, what can I do to improve that experience for users? And I thought I'll roll back and I provided these publications in uh, print, in a print-on-demand capacity. So this yeah. was a long time ago, 2000. Yeah. I developed a relationship with okay. a public, uh, printer in Adelaide and this is what we did. And so then I went happily on to publish, I think, about 13 original books in Wagga. And one of them was the Wagga Wagga History that you mentioned received the Premier's Award for History. And that I published on behalf of the Wagga Wagga City Council. Okay. But about five years into our stay in Wagga, my husband said, well, what about, you know, earning some money? Because you don't really earn that much money as a small publisher. And that's when I looked around and I got a job at uh, ANU as okay. one of those founder members. So that was the shift and the start of the career in Canberra. All right. Well, wow. What a career. But listen, I'm, I'm really interested and I think we can always learn so much from the mentors in our career. So going back to Cyril and, and to Jürgen, what did they teach you then that you know to be true to today? Well, I think Cyril was... Um, very quality focused. So everything had to be checked and precise before it left my desk or his desk or the printers. So I think I learned then, or I started to learn then about the rigors of publishing. And when I worked with Jürgen, because he was German and very correct and pedantic and 
uh, precise, I learned even more about the rigors that are required. And I think that has stood me in good stead in more recent years, where we've made this very rapid transition from the kind of traditions of publishing into a digital environment and where we've almost been hijacked by people who've said, well, I thought we were hijacked by people who said, oh, let's publish this or let's edit this. And it wasn't the process of editing or publishing that I learned back in the day in the 1970s and the 1980s. And certainly from Jürgen, I learned um, the pleasure and maybe the romance of producing books in print. Um, because that I, I, I sort of drifted away from that for a while, yes. but I'm returning to it now. Yeah. And even though, as my husband calls me, I'm a digital diva, I do still think that there's great value and pleasure in producing a high-quality print book too. So I think those are the things that I learned from them. The other things that I learned from Jürgen in particular were the business of publishing. Right. So how do you cost a product? How do you sell it into the trade? How do you sell it into a book club? What does the author recoup? What does the uh, illustrator get? How do you manage a co- an international co-production? How do you print overseas? What does FOB and CIB yeah. I think, mean? <laughs> Free on board, uh, cost yeah, includes yeah. freight, CIF. Yeah, yeah. So it was the business of publishing that I learned. And for that, I'm really very grateful because I think at one stage, most probably in the early part of the century, we sort of wobbled, moved away from that rigour because there was the sense that, oh, anybody could produce a publication. Yeah. And I think that's what I learned, that there's this need for those skills to be maintained. And, and interestingly, I think the point that really comes out of that is really this notion of quality. You know, the, and I think we're at that point now where quantity it has been proven to be quite an ineffective way because people are, have never been better educated Yes, They know and they can understand and they can smell and they can feel and they can touch value. Yes. And value only comes from quality and effort and, and, time. Ap- and yes. time and application. Yes. So right. how, do, how do people come to understand that, that they have to produce quality content in order to influence the audiences that they're they're seeing. Well, I suppose in the private sector, if you're an author and you want to produce your own book, it's essential that your book should A, be edited in the first case, first instance. It should be uh, designed and produced appropriately. It should be marketed through the trade. So So your advice, though, really, for anyone producing any sort of content, be it a blog post or an infographic... Give it to somebody to have a look at. I think that's a very good idea. Yes, use work with experts in that area. Even I, and I think you know, I'm quite a well-equipped writer. Yep. Whenever I write a post, I read it over three times. I preview it, preview it four times. Do you leave uh, it aside for a while? I leave it then, aside, and then, and then come I come back. back. Yes, yeah. I'm very, I'm very impulsive, and I would like to publish it immediately. Yeah, but I know that my audience for whom I publish it will come back and say to me, Bobby, do you realise publishing is not spelt with two i n g s? <laughs> and people love to point out those little errors. So it yeah. does show that people put a lot of um, effort into reading things closely. Yeah. And in the government sector, I think uh, quality is paramount because the government sector produces the most amazing research work and yet it's hardly known about. And I think if the – I shouldn't say the quality should be increased. Maybe the visibility should be increased and that would enable more people to benefit from something like – you know, research publications, which might be considered less important in some sense. Yeah. Well, there's no question that, you know, in the public sector, the content repositories are enormous and there's so much value 
locked away really yes. and locked away behind often impenetrable language and and bad graphics and really it's not produced in a way that's meant for the audience. Absolutely. So, so how how do people working in the public sector who have access to all these resources, what advice can you give them to transition a, a dense research report into some assets that people are going to actually want to look at? Well, my, my word of advice would be focus on the user. What does the user want? What do I, Bobby Graham, want? How do I want to receive that content? And my short answer is make it available and work for an iPhone, for a smartphone. Okay. If your content can work for a smartphone, that means anybody and most, apart from maybe the most disabled people will not be able to access it. But generally, that's my advice. Uh, I was in Melbourne the other day, as one does, one pops down, catching the tram down Ligon Street at 8.30 in the morning, surrounded by people going to work. I can tell you that every single person on that tram not just a handful, but every single person was looking at their smartphone. Yeah. Now, if I'm in the government sector, how am I going to get my content to your eyes unless I get it made available to you in a device or in a manner in which you want to receive it? So my advice is make it available so that it can be read on any kind of screen and specifically a mobile phone. It's interesting you say that because I was in Sydney the other day and teaching a class in content marketing in government. And one of the tasks we had between day one and day two was to observe this practice of observation. So as when you're looking to understand your audience, to observe. And so I undertook the exercise myself. And it was exactly the same observation that I made as I was catching a bus into the city. As each bus was going past, there were either the uh, earphones in mm -hmm. where people were listening to podcasts uh, or music or whatever it was that they were listening to, or it was head down into the screen. So it's really the battle to earn the right, mm -hmm. isn't it, yes. to get onto yes. the screen. Yes. So again, once we're – say we've got our formatting right yes. we're, and we're, we're mobile enabled, Yes. how then do we keep people's attention when we know that there is this abundance that they, they, they could put their attention anywhere – but how do we make them stay with us? That's a very interesting point, and uh, I'm not sure how best to answer that, but I would guess that the presentation is really important. And I just want to wind back the conversation a little bit before we talk further about mobile phones is yep. how do we implement the process appropriately in the government sector to produce content that people like? Now, one of the things that I learned, and you asked me about past learning experience, when I worked for the educational publisher, we produced very complex publications in many languages, yeah. nine Af black African languages, South African languages. And what we used to do is prior to every single project, we'd have a pre-prod meeting, pre-production meeting, to which we invited the author, the editor or editors, the proofreaders, the designers, the IT people, the printers, and the marketing people. And everybody got a common understanding of the product. We did something similar at the end. So we had a post-production meeting to discuss where, you know, what the issues had been, what we learned, what were the lessons. This was a long time ago. So this was in 1995, 96, that era. So my feeling, having worked in the public service and having some sort of understanding of it, is that there's a certain disjunct between those people who are producing the content and those people who are delivering it on the other side. So, for yes. example, if I'm a policy writer, I don't really have much influence, almost probably even care about the way that content is delivered on the other side. It's almost like a byproduct. Yeah. And I think that's if, if we could 
uh, improve the way that products are developed internally and draw upon the resources of the government sector employees to deliver that content, getting back to what you asked me earlier, in a way that will make it interesting and enticing to me, then I think that a lot of the battle will be won. And the other point that I want to make is that I think most organisations are still focused on developing content for print. So it's going to be 96 pages, it's going to be uh, 137 by 213 millimetres in size or A4 or A5 or whatever the government's producing, and they don't really understand or know uh, another way of producing it or they haven't had the opportunity to explore it or to test it. So how can you produce content appropriately for a smartphone? What do you need to do to produce it for a tablet? I'm sure those questions are being asked in certain areas, but I think until they're more pervasive and more widely taken up, it'll be a challenge to get an agency or any organisation to provide something that appeals to me because to, for me to be attracted to a product, it has to compete with my shopping experience, my other reading experience, some other kind of research space, maybe some apps that I think are quite fun. So as you say, there's a lot that it has to compete with. And I think if you deliver content, good content, that shines through itself with some additional elements maybe to make it more appealing, then we could be a considerable way towards producing content that's appealing to a broad audience. But that's a good point because I think that really puts its finger on on one issue for communication in the public sector, which says we're the government or we're an NGO or we're a not-for-profit and people need to read our information anyway, so who cares? Is, it, is, is that an attitude, do you think? I think it is an attitude and I have heard it in departments where they say, oh, well, who's really going to be interested in such a small segment or such a small niche area of our publishing. You know, we've got a a group of scientists or a group of researchers who are writing about a very small subject area that may only interest them. So why do we need to make that more palatable for David or for Bobby or for Samir or for whoever might might vaguely be interested? I personally think that you can make anything interesting and exciting. I mean, look at the rise of books that have dealt with longitude, latitude, subjects that, you know, thermometers maybe, barometers, I don't know, any of those kind of things. But if they're presented in a way where they tell a fabulous story, then I'll read it too. Sure. And I think the other thing is that is one of the big trends is the is the narrowing of the world. You know, the broadcast era I think is finished because now people are in control, as you said before, of the information, education and entertainment that they receive, when they receive it, at what time, on their device. Mm -hmm. And so the narrower, the better. And increasingly, you know, we live in a global world. So your niche might be quite small in a particular country or state or territory or whatever, but there's an audience for it globally, uh, you know, and we've found with this podcast, you know, the audience is quite large. Yes. It's a narrow sort of area. We're talking about public sector communication, but people from all over the world who are interested are, are dipping in because it's meant for them. That's right. So how then do you sort of validate this need to to, to service that niche? That's also an interesting question. I, I haven't really been able to give much thought to that prior to this chat. So um How do we service a narrow niche? I think, again, it comes back to the users. Who is interested in it? How are we going to find them? How are we going to use the tools at at hand to unearth those? 
And uh, I think we find users all over the everywhere. Uh, you know, there was that recent example of the people who produced that beautiful honey, the pouring honey device, where it's a local provider's where they um, developed a tap. Oh, yes, I saw that, and, yes. And, you yeah. know, they called for funding and they got millions, literally yes. millions. And that's, I would think, quite, I would have thought quite yes. a small area, but obviously there are many, many, many beekeepers <laughs> in the world. Yeah. So who would have thought something like that? So I think, yes, if we can unearth those particular people who are interested in, in those sectors, then we can. And most probably the best way of unearthing those is through word of mouth. Yeah. So, and word of mouth, I think, includes social media because... I don't know about you, but I Facebook, I Twitter, I Instagram, I Pinterest, I blog. I do everything all the time. So I think that's a, a really – that has made a significant change in the way information is delivered and disseminated in the world. I think your point is is a really good one, and it's a bit of advice I do give in our workshops, is that if in doubt at any point of your content marketing process that you're thinking about, go back to the user – Go back to the user need and hug your user and understand them a little bit better. And if you can spend more time with the user, the path will, it, things tend to work out if you can go back there first. And that'll help you to make whatever decision it is that, that comes down the path. Absolutely. Yes. Get to know your user really well and uh, make sure you segment your users too. Because one of the things that I learned when I worked at the National Library was uh, we we would ask a question, or we would ask the question, who are our users? And the response was usually everybody's your user, but everybody, you can't you can't market to answer. everybody. That's not an answer. So it's important it? to find out specifically who they are. And I've just done an exercise like that in my own business, okay. reflecting on the last three years. It's a good time to refresh and revise my website. So who are my users of my services, and how am I servicing them? And that was quite an interesting exercise. And I found that there's a common thread across all of them, whether they're private individuals, government sector, or not-for-profits. So I'm going to make my personal webs my personal business website more specific and targeted at those requirements and try and reshape my service offering, not to reflect what I offer, but to showcase what people want. Excellent stuff. Now, what I really love is that, just going back a few of the answers that you gave, um, um, or an answer you gave a little while ago, is about that process and about that pre-production process and about bringing everybody into the room to establish that common understanding before you get started. So how do you actually go about understanding who should be in the room and what's the outcome? What do we want to actually have at the end of that pre-production meeting? Because from a content marketing program point of view, it's a great idea because before we hit go on what we're going to start publishing across, um, across offline channels or online channels or engagement with third-party influencers, we want to really get that buy-in at that early stage. So what should we be hoping to have at the end of that pre-production meeting? Well, I think you've kind of almost answered your question yourself because I think it's really important to get all those role players together. And I think it's easy to make an assumption, myself or yourself as a producer, that you understand and know all the processes. And I did it recently with something. I had a client and they engaged me to do a specific job and I did the specific job and then they kept on coming back to me and asking me to kind of add on to that. And I thought, why are they doing this? Yeah, and I took okay. the chap out for tea and said, but you know, according to my quote, this is what I did. And he said, but my understanding was that you would continue doing that. 
So not just for that kind of period of the launch or whatever it was. So it was so easy to have that misunderstanding. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important to get people talking together up front because clearly you have a different opinion to yeah. where I would produce something. So it is important to get those messages up front. But it's also, yeah, but then to sort of almost agree on it, write it out and get everyone very clear about this is what we are seeking to do yes, absolutely. from this program. And I think the other important thing, putting on my production manager's hat, is that it's really important to follow that up and stay in touch with that group. So if you set up that motion of a project uh, and you have your pre-production, it's important to meet regularly and to talk through the processes and to keep uh, informed everybody informed about it. So what I usually do is I have a weekly meeting or a fortnightly meeting or a monthly meeting and I would follow it up with um, some notes. So, you know, this meeting today we agreed this and this and this so that I have a record of it. And I think it's really important to have that uh, record of agreement so that you or I can refer back to it. I mean, it sounds like a simple sort of thing to do, but I think a lot of people don't. Yeah. And the other th- the other thing that I often find is that people don't provide you with the context. I, I remember going into one, uh, one of the areas where I worked and I would get roped into the meetings and I didn't know what I was doing there, which sounds like a strange sort of thing, but I wasn't sure what my role was. I wasn't sure where I came in in the middle of the project and I wasn't sure who was managing the project and what their roles were. So it's easy not to understand that process if you're not involved from the beginning. And I think the trick to getting projects produced is to bring everybody along with you all the way constantly through to the end, Yeah, but which I, is I, not an easy thing to it, do. It, it's not, but I do also love that advice around context and making sure that people understand the problem that we're all working together to seek to solve or what yes. the goal we're seeking to accomplish, whatever that is. But let's let everybody understand because then that can open other people's minds because some people might think, I'm actually here to do my bit or I'm here to solve another problem. I didn't actually think it was that problem. I thought we were here to do something else because my boss told me it was something else. So that's a really great piece of advice is to spend those hours early on to really flesh it out. Absolutely. So we stay in touch. Mm. We keep people posted. That's right. We Mm. get to the end of the project. What do we do post-production? Have a party usually. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess we review. Well, we do have parties. Yeah, well, well, celebration. There's a book launch. But we're people, aren't we? Ultimately, we're humans and we want to celebrate and we want to enjoy. And particularly if you've been on a journey with a group of people. And it's hard. And and you've achieved something significant and you've accomplished something, there's nothing better than getting together and having a bit of fun. Yes. And I think that post-production meeting is most probably a bit lighter can be lighter because it's not one of blame. It's one of, hey, gee, we really did well on this or we didn't yes. do or should we do this again or how are we going to do it again? So in, in, a, in a way that's a less formal process for me personally in managing a large project. Yeah. Now, I was really interested also in one of your earlier answers around this journey of, you know, you went all digital. You went all in digital and then all of a sudden you sort of thought, hang on, I'm swimming around in this massive content and – I really want to swing back to that beach to get that value of the of the printed material. And I think sometimes at the moment we're losing that. But in, interestingly, some of the big global brands at the moment are going back to printed collateral. Uh, Airbnb has have launched a magazine. Uber 
have launched a magazine. You know, magazine is a magazine in print only, and it deals with the web web environment. Yeah. So, so we're going yes. back there. Why are we going back there? Uh, well, I think that there's a real pleasure in the sort of artisanal approach to production. So. Why are we doing those other artisanal things like baking bread or knitting or okay, um, right on. making leather goods yeah. or crocheting or whatever it might be? So I think bookmaking in itself is a terrific craft. I think producing a, a high-quality crafted book with, say, you know, leather, half-spine and beautiful end papers and lovely paper with deckle-edged uh, edging is a delight. I don't think there's any value in producing the latest bestseller for sale at the airport. I just can get that on my on my iPhone sure. and I read it on Kindle. Yeah. So I think I think that there's an interest in restoring and maintaining those qualities and those design elements that are that people like. You know, we all still do like the touch of a book, the smell of a book. At one stage, I poo-pooed it. I said, why do, you, why do you want to sniff a book? It only smells of glue. Yeah. But, you know, you would have seen people when you get a book straight from the printer, the first thing they do is they open it up and they smell it because it does. It's that ink and that glue and the paper. Yeah. It smells lovely. So I used to poo-poo it. And then I, I've come to the thinking in the last year or so that perhaps digital can coexist with print. So I'm not in, against print. I don't think I personally would be buying... Um, novels that I can just read on my Kindle on my iPhone. But I certainly think that there's a place for crafted, curated, well-produced books. And also context as well, isn't it? Because I I get why Airbnb would produce a magazine to have in uh, an apartment or a house so that when the guests arrive, in that context, it's sitting on the table and it can create, I can get value from it. If I get into my Uber, mm. it's in the back of the seat so I can pull it out or, you know, and yes. so in that context yes. I can see. So it goes back to that point of context, doesn't yes. it? That print can be quite contextual. Yes. I was When I was in Melbourne recently, I attended a conference for small uh, publishers and one of the things I discovered there is that I think it's Hardy Grant, they produce books that they sell into Sportscraft and they're actually sold in the shops and I wasn't even aware of it. So yeah. clearly I'm not the person that they're marketing to. But there's that value add that you're talking about. So I think it's got – I think producing books and quality products like that is almost uh, a kind of – there's an elegance about it which is appealing. Obviously, you can produce a book as a, as a marketing tool uh, f- to promote your business, and I think that's a really good reason for producing publications. And what I particularly am interested in, what I call hybrid publishing, where you produce in print and in digital, yeah. and I think that there's a great value in that. Okay. But there's, a, there's, there's, so, there's so many different products. So there's the high-end, full-color print book on some beautiful topic – and then there's the more practical publication, which can be handed out. You could be handing out. I'm sure you've got a book already, haven't you, David? Uh, on not content yet. marketing. No, oh, no, no. Sitting opposite a publisher. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, there's a certain value in you producing a print book that you can then use oh, to yeah. market oh, to yeah, your yeah. clients. Yeah, massively and, important. And most uh, business business yeah. people would recognise yeah, that as well. Yeah. They, call uh, it the, they call it the world's biggest business card. That's right. Know, yeah, that it is. Exactly. And then there's the product in between, which is the beautiful digital product. And yes. you can get very, very nicely curated digital products these days too. Yes. But so, again, yes. The, the all roads lead back to the user, to the audience, mm. don't they? 
So whenever, whenever you are making any sort of decisions about whatever mix it is, go back to that understanding that you have of the audience, go back to their context, go back to their needs, go back to their wants. And if it is a print execution, well... That's what that's knock, what you're going to make. The, knock the, yourself yes, out. Okay, right. we've only got a couple of minutes sure. left before we go. So perhaps, I don't know, your top three tips to, to people who are working out there in communications, you know, it could be typography tips, it could be other tips, but maybe just some some top-line advice that people, when they're next thinking about producing content, be it digital or or printed, what are the top three things that they really need to, to understand? Well, certainly go back to the user, find out what the user wants. Okay, great. And, and I said at the beginning of this, make sure that it delivers on mobile phone or a tablet. Don't yep. just design for a desktop. Okay. And I suppose the third thing is aim for top quality in all aspects of it. And if you can't produce it yourself, and I certainly can't do everything, employ the people who can. Yeah. So use the experts who can do the editing, who can do the design, who can do the digital delivery, who can provide the print or other output that you want. Yeah. So those would be my top Because it tips. really is, it, 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 it says so much about you, doesn't it? And it says so much about your brand and who you are and your aspiration and your your agency or department or your program that you would take the pride to produce something that tells a great story, um, that engages in that emotional uh, story. You know, story begins when life's thrown out of balance and really to try to take people on a journey to bring them with you to build that understanding that drives That's ultimately right. be- behaviour. And don't try to be to be too smart about it. One of the things that Jürgen taught me, and maybe I'll leave with that, is when we spoke about good book design and typography, he said, good book design and typography is only intended to lead the user through the book. It should be totally invisible to them other than that. Excellent. And isn't that lovely? <laughs> That's lovely. Well, Bobby, thank you so much for giving us up um, or giving some of your valuable time to us this afternoon to share your insights, your wisdom, your history, your story with uh, the audience. And as I say, it's a, it's a global audience and it's people who are interested and committed to doing a better job on behalf of the public sector organisations they're working for. And I know this is an issue that everyone's always interested about because we all want to do better and there's so much value in the conversation we've just had. So thank you very much for joining us and thanks very much to you, audience, for joining us once again. Just another reminder, head to the website if you want to and sign up to the newsletter because we are now going to put a bit more of an emphasis on continuing to build out this audience. And if you do, if you do see some value in these podcasts, spread the word. Let people know, let's build the community and we'll continue to discuss this matter of content marketing in the public sector. So thanks very much for your time. Bobby, thanks to you for your time and we'll see you again next week. You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content marketing in the public sector. For more, visit us at contentgroup.com.au.